Welcome to the Halal Metropolis podcast, where we interview artists and other creatives from the Muslim communities of Southeast Michigan to explore how their work contributes to the visibility and vitality of the Detroit metropolitan region. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Assalamualaikum and welcome. My name is Usman Khan. I'm one of the curators of the Halal Metropolis Project and a professor at the Stamp School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan. Today, my guest is community organizer, Mark Crane. Mark is the executive director of Dream of Detroit, an initiative to combine community organizing with housing and land development to revitalize a neighborhood and build a thriving, healthy community on the west side of Detroit. Dream organizes local residents as well as folks from throughout the metro area Muslim community in the fight to achieve racial and economic justice in Detroit's neighborhoods. Mark, welcome. Thank you so much. It's good to be here with you. So Mark, I thought we could start with sort of uh, you telling us about your kind of your journey to where you are now, because I know it's not it's not a straight line. Uh huh. And it's always exciting to understand how someone gets to where they are now. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, of course, it's never a straight line and every year adds some some zigzags. Um, so in terms of my journey to where I am now, um, I guess I should start with where I am now. So um, I am uh, a family man, uh, father of three, uh, proud husband uh, to one Mrs. Hazel Gomez um, and uh, and a community organizer and nonprofit executive um, working in, in my hometown, um, my first love, the city of Detroit. Um, so professionally, I work as uh, the executive director at Dream of Detroit, which is, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, a community development organization that's trying to combine these different facets of a healthy community uh, to revitalize our neighborhood. Um, and this is, you know, in a way, my dream job. Uh, this is the type of work that I dreamed of doing when I was a kid, when I was in high school, when I left Detroit to go to college. Um, it's work that I've been able to do as a volunteer now for many years and work that I'm grateful to finally be able to do as uh, my full-time job, which I, I know is a, a privilege. So um, so that's where, where I am uh, in life. And uh, in terms of how I got here, I'll try to give a version that isn't too lengthy. Um, you know, I'm a, a, a son of Detroit, uh, born and raised here in the city, um, uh, you know, both sides of my family go back a couple of generations in the city. Uh, we're not we're not some of those long timers. We're not from the the families from the late 1800s, but we have been here since the 40s and 50s. And and um, again, many aunts and uncles and cousins and second cousins and third cousins uh, all throughout the metro area. Um, so very much a, a Detroit family um, with roots in the South, like like most Black families, with roots in uh, Mississippi and uh, Arkansas. Uh, as well as roots in, in South Dakota. Uh, my maternal grandmother was a uh, Lakota, um, and so I'm actually a, a quarter Lakota. Um, um, so as I mentioned, uh, born and raised here, um, and, uh, you know, typical kind of Detroit kid, uh, you know, kind of upbringing. I was born on the west side, um, right by the Hitsville USA um, to give some context there. But then I actually moved to the east side when I was fairly young. So I was one of those families where, 
you know, everyone was living on one block and then one branch of us moved to the other side of town. Um, and so I kind of grew up going back and forth. Um, and, uh, you know, went to school and uh, Catholic schools and Detroit public schools until middle school uh, when I had an opportunity to start attending uh, Cranbrook out in Bloomfield Hills. Um, that experience of going 45 minutes each way for seven years from the east side of Detroit to Bloomfield Hills was really formative for me in terms of understanding race in the metro Detroit area, in terms of um, developing a, a sort of class consciousness, in terms of um, uh, you know, understanding discrimination and racism at a really early age. Um, and then I, you know, graduated from there and left for college uh, and went and spent four years at Northwestern University. Um, again, another very formative period, first time away from home for a long time. Um, um, you know, very much active on campus and a number of different things. Um, and then I left Northwestern and stuck around Chicago for a few years. Um, I left thinking, you know what, I'll be back in four years. I, you know, I never intended to leave Detroit ever, actually. Uh, and I graduated from Northwestern and ended up sticking around Chicago for about four years. And in that time, um, I had a chance to start working at a place called the Inner City Muslim Action Network, uh, really coming to understand community organizing as a practice. Uh, had a chance to get married, have my first kid, uh, and eventually move back to Detroit. Um, now, you know, there's like a a huge kind of life-altering moment in there that I kind of brushed past, which is my senior year of college, uh, I became Muslim. Um, I was raised in a Christian household, um, was a church kid, Sundays, youth group, et cetera, Bible, vacation Bible school. And um, while I wasn't necessarily on any sort of spiritual journey per se, uh, I had one conversation with a friend that sort of ignited uh, a search for more and led to me ultimately um, accepting Islam my second semester of my senior year of college. Uh, and so I had gone away to college to study political science and, and then African-American studies. And I, I used to say that black people in politics were my two passions. Uh, and then all of a sudden I had this new faith and this new community. Um, and so Islam and the Muslim community, you know, joined that list of passions. Um, so I don't want to get too long-winded without giving a break for, for other types of questions, but that's essentially what led me back to Detroit. I spent the, the next eight years or so, um, again, doing Dream as a volunteer project, but also working at a place called Move On at that time, doing a lot of uh, sort of national community organizing and mobilizing. Um, and just recently have I had the chance to finally be fully sort of locally focused. So that's what I'm excited about these days. Oh, that's... Um I definitely will want to follow up on faith and um, and the community organizing and how the two might uh, support each other. But before that, maybe uh, in case our audience doesn't know, tell us more about Dream, how it how it came about, how your role, mm -hmm. but also, you know, to me, what's really amazing and powerful about it is also a very holistic notion of what a neighborhood should be. So. Maybe just explaining both what it how it came to be, but also its vision and or especially your vision for it. Yeah. Well, in terms of the vision for it, I mean, we hope that this is an organization that helps to revitalize an entire neighborhood on the west side of Detroit, um, a neighborhood that was essentially left for dead. Uh, urban planners working with the city and the local foundations um, suggested that this neighborhood should be what they called an ecological innovation zone. 
you know, they said that population uh, would never rebound, that attrition was too great, that loss was too great, and that over time, the neighborhood, sh- the neighborhood should have city services discontinued, um, and things like uh, vacant lots should be allowed to just overgrow. They could, they they coined a term controlled overgrowth. Sounds like an oxymoron <laughs> to me. Um, you know, but this was a neighborhood that had families that had five generations still living in the in the neighborhood that had institutions like the Detroit Repertory Theater that had been there for 60 years, um, the Muslim Center Mosque and Community Center and the Huda Clinic. Uh, together, you know, between those two entities, the, the Muslim, the local Muslim community had invested probably two and a half, three million dollars in that area just in the last 15 years. Um, and so, you know, we had to really challenge that narrative that our neighborhood wasn't worth saving, that it didn't deserve city services after a number of years, that that folks would never want to come back to it. Um, and so that's what we, you know, stepped into. And um, for us to be able to achieve that goal of, of building a truly thriving community, one one that's walkable, one that's healthy, um, one that's neighborly, um, where, where neighborliness is a shared value in and of itself, um, one that is, uh, you know, full occupancy in terms of the housing, but also has an economic vitality to it where folks can shop and sit and eat and work. Um, and recreational spaces. Uh, to do all of that, we we had to take a sort of multi-pronged approach. You know, we started with just one home rehab, a couple of groups that got together and said, hey, we want to rehab a home for a, a person in need. And we had to look beyond that to say, you know, what would it look like to actually build mixed income housing all throughout this neighborhood, not to just double down on low income housing in an already economically depressed neighborhood? Uh, what would it look like to actually put businesses back on uh, Woodrow Wilson Street again, which is our sort of main economic corridor, uh, you know, that we hope to rename one day, um, you know, and then beyond that, what would it look like for our residents to feel empowered enough that a group of uh, professionals could never step in and tell them that their neighborhood wasn't worth saving again, right? What would it look like for our, our residents to be organized enough and to uh, feel that they have enough agency and a strong enough voice to push back against that type of narrative themselves before it ever becomes ingrained in the in the you know the common discourse, um, and so those are the the sort of three legs of the work: it's housing development, it's economic development, and it's community organizing. Um, you know, another thing that we sort of had to contend with was that, um, you know, we were we started to raise essentially hundreds of thousands of dollars to rehab homes in our neighborhood, and we had to also ask ourselves, you know, how do we how do we contend with the systemic issues that have made the neighborhood look like this and not just take this rather, frankly, sort of privatized neoliberal approach to, to rebuilding the neighborhood one by one with housing. And so, you know, part of that was uh, getting involved in, in a campaign called the Coalition for Property Tax Justice. And this was the effort to sort of hold the city accountable for overtaxing people and then foreclosing on properties. Um, hold the county accountable for that process and, and the auction and the role that they play um, and, and try to get compensation for the uh, uh, 100 of 100,000 households that have been foreclosed on in Detroit in the last 10 years for property taxes, um, for inflated property taxes. So that's, you know, kind of the scope of our work. You know, it's very much hands-on neighborhood development. You know, we're very much a community development corporation, technically speaking. But we're also a community-based organization that's about, you know, building people power. Um, that's about, you know, again, a holistic sort of solution to the neighborhood. So I'm kind of curious also, um, <clears throat> um, 
in a way, I'm going to bring it up this way, but, uh, you know, just kind of both the successes and challenges of doing things the hard way, mm -hmm. right? Uh, as you said, it's a different approach to kind of neoliberal, the current way things do. Uh, it's not part of their narrative, and they'd rather scratch this out. And But we've also seen the development of certain parts of Detroit that have followed that line and, uh, for lack of a better word, have prospered in, mm -hmm. in a certain way. Mm -hmm. In a certain way. Uh, I'm kind of to that. I mean, you guys are still fighting the good fight in a way, but a little bit about both the successes and challenges. And then also, is there, is there also just a different narrative of what success could be, should be, um, that is coming out of the community, right? That it's not necessarily having the ca a cafe there, but maybe it is. A ca I don't know, right? There's a there's a certain earmark of how success looks in a s urban structure. Yeah, yeah. Um, is, it, is are you also thinking alternatives to that, or uh, partly because it is it you know even though there's the Muslim center, it's not a, only a Muslim neighborhood. Right. Absolutely. Uh, but also just having such a strong presence of a faith-based institution part of the part of the initiative I mean, you know yeah that that of course we could look to historically churches playing some of that role but but it but in a way is this even different uh than something like that yeah so we are um you know our own separate organization right we have our own board of directors and volunteer base and bank accounts and everything we are in partnership with the muslim center mosque and community center um but not you know an entity that's uh you know technically related to it if you will um, similarly we're in partnership with the local free clinic the Huda clinic we're in partnership with the the local theater the repertory theater um, in partnership with the local block club which is really more of a neighborhood association which we helped found and it kind of shares our borders um, so you know in a neighborhood like ours where there aren't very many institutions it behooves us all to be in partnership we also are trying to expand our partnerships into the Christian community as well um, you know, we have good informal relationships with uh, folks who are in leadership and longtime members at some of the local churches, but have yet to build really strong formal partnerships with those churches. Early on, if, if, if folks would ask me, you know, are we partnering with the churches or why not? I would say some flippant remark to the effect of, you know, we're trying to get the Muslims in shape first, you know, um, which is still necessary and still a work in progress. But I do feel like we have made enough progress in terms of, um, you know, sort of reversing the trajectory of the neighborhood, that is really important that um, all the institutions that are not formally bought in go ahead and buy in and that we do the work to make that that possible. Um, so that is, you know, just kind of like one area where this has to be a multi-faith effort. It has to be something that engages, you know, all the stakeholders in the neighborhood from the longtime residents uh, to the, the institutions, the, the businesses, to the folks who want to move there, frankly. Um, I think everyone kind of sort of has a, a voice in uh, what the future of the neighborhood should be. Um, and of course, with an, with an emphasis on those voices that have sustained the neighborhood over all these years. Um, success for us. You know, I have I always have to balance conversations of success. I always have to remind myself, first and foremost, and whomever I'm in conversation with, um, about how grateful I am for what we've been able to do. You know, as you mentioned, this was not a, a, a heavily Muslim neighborhood. I mean, it, you know, frankly, the, 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 the mosque there, the masjid was very much in the, in the vein of like a commuter masjid, right? It was a place where uh, 
had massive attendance at Juma, mashallah, and you know is a center for the AIDS. It's like a it's like a jamia in that way. It is, um, you know, also a place where again people drove in on Fridays. They didn't walk to the masjid on a daily basis. There wasn't a huge emphasis, and it's and it, you know there's a huge emphasis on service. The clinic grew out of the masjid, a 30 year pantry and soup kitchen, and a bunch of other efforts in that vein. But in terms of folks building a living community around the masjid, it just hadn't been a part of its history. And when we started this project, we saw that the masjid was at a point in time where certain communities had come together there where there was an interest in building more of a walking community living around the masjid. So for us to have these 10, 12 houses done, I mean, it's 12 houses, but it's, some of them are programmatic and we can talk about that. But um, for us to have that done at this stage is actually, you know, quite significant in a way. It's also a far cry from where we actually want to be. Right, it it is an entire order of magnitude smaller than the impact we think we can have, inshallah, ta'ala, you know, God willing. And so, we have to um, continue to really figure out how we scale this work. Um, and so, we are in a sort of learning phase. Um, you know, we just bought our first commercial parcels last August, uh, vacant land, so we have to build from scratch. Um, we're actually entering a phase in the project, both residentially and commercially, where we have to be looking at new construction. Um, we're sort of starting to exhaust the rehabable properties in the neighborhood. Um, you know, and I think we're also, uh, you know, I would call another success, you know, just the establishment of the organizing work. You know, I, I think we are filling a void in the, in the Metro Detroit area Muslim community. Um, in terms of an organizing vehicle for Muslims to plug into, um, a place where you can come and, and sort of co-develop a political analysis and, and, and uh, be in conversation with folks who care about issues of racial and social and economic justice, particularly in the city. But we're always balancing that, and I, I would call it a moderate success so far, but it's always a, a process um, of, of balancing the fusing of this base of metro area Muslims who come from a number of different ethnic and class backgrounds with our local community, which is primarily working class black and non-Muslim, right? And so um, how are we sort of walking a line where we're bringing those two bases together into one, right, authentically and, and in a way that um, benefits both of them? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would suggest that those are, are some of the successes so far i mean there are myriad challenges you know i can't you know from from trying to attain individual parcels that people won't sell and then homes get destroyed by fire and then they're going to sit there vacant for another two or three years before they actually get demolished all types of problems like that that, that sort of add up um you know i i don't think that we've had trouble getting people's attention alhamdulillah um whether it's our district manager or the council person's office or the mayor's office or whomever it might be, I think we have alhamdulillah, had some success sort of getting on people's radar. And again, that's been a part of us turning around that narrative. Um, but I do think that there's still a challenge of where does the money flow from in Detroit? And so we're seeing like a huge infusion of federal funds, of course, which is helpful and something that, you know, dream hopes to take advantage of. Um, but certainly prior to that, and even parallel to that, if you will, um, most monies are earmarked for certain neighborhoods. They're earmarked for neighborhoods that are part of the Strategic Neighborhood Fund. These are neighborhoods that are already seen as marketable, already seen as creditworthy, already seen as bankable. And these are areas that where, where uh, 
you know, corporate funds are being mobilized to support these areas. However, the nonprofit, the philanthropic sector rather, is also being mobilized to support these areas. When the reality is they especially should be being mobilized to support the areas that are not actually seen as creditworthy by the banks, not seen as, as bankable. Um, and so for all of those resources to be being pulled in one direction is, is you know, something that puts neighborhoods like ours at a disadvantage. Um, so, you know, to some extent, there are some some uphill battles, right? Um, we knew that when we started the work. Um, but I think we, we remain committed to a really bold vision of hundreds of units of new and redeveloped properties of, again, a genuinely mixed income community um, and of a thriving Woodrow Wilson Street that's lined with Muslim owned and or, you know, green sort of eco-friendly businesses. Inshallah. Inshallah. Uh, you had also uh, kind of brought up but alluded to some specially uh, special programming for certain developments or houses that were um, yeah you want to just talk about yeah things. sure so I mean, uh, of our properties a couple of them in particular have are, are more programmatic so the first is uh, project homecoming which is our transitional home for formerly incarcerated men um, you know this is a home that we opened the doors to a couple of years ago it's been slow getting a full house of residents because of the pandemic right. because folks have been isolation and so forth uh, you know for two and a half years our our, our you know, brothers and sisters who were incarcerated were not able to, to make Juma. Uh, you know, they were not able to congregate it anyway. Um, and so spreading the word about the house has been sort of a slow process. But, you know, we remain in conversation with like 50 brothers right now who are who are all in some um, part of the of the release process, inshallah. And the, and the premise here really was, you know, um, Islam becomes this really transformative force for a lot of people who are incarcerated and the way that it offers a path toward self-discipline, uh, in a way that it, it reframes the value of life, um, in a way that it prioritizes the value of community and brotherhood and mutual support. And then folks come home, and a lot of times um, they're not offered much in the way of helping them sustain that faith. Mm-hmm. And it's quite different to try to practice this faith in, the, in this in this free society um, versus, you know, a gender segregated, uh, highly regimented, scheduled place. Um, And so, you know, especially if you're coming home and you have to go live with family who are drinking or smoking or whatever, or you have to go stay at a a halfway house that, um, you know, doesn't cater to your values, um, you know, it can be easy to sort of lose your way. And so we wanted to create a space that could help brothers, again, transition back into uh, you know, um, the, uh, uh, back into the community in a way that was healthy for them, in a way that was sustainable for them, um, and in a way that's healthy for the community also, frankly. And so the house, uh, Project Homecoming, we've got four bids. Um, we are two blocks from the masjid. Um, we uh, connect brothers to uh, health services, uh, to counseling services, to job placement services, um, we immediately upon folks release, you know, help them attain their essential documents and so forth. Um, and we try to support brothers through a sort of spiritual development, um, regimen, uh, that, that keeps them connected to their faith as, as they get regrounded. Um, so that, that's the, the first sort of programmatic property, if you will. And then the other being in partnership with Indus Detroit and proudly having a home in our neighborhood that's home to uh, to this artist residency with Indus Detroit. And so 
um, you know, very much eager to see that sort of being programmed again now that we exit COVID. Um, you know, had a phenomenal uh, exhibit there with you all with the, the uh, Halal Metropolis uh, exhibit three years ago now. It's yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um But yeah, you know, I think those two spaces speak to um, just the intentionality of the entire project. Um, and, and, and sort of, you know, using these houses to, to really activate the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But again, I think to, to my thing, like the kind of more holistic approach mm-hmm. uh, that we don't, uh, that the, how we understand community is through all of this, through different um, members, through different activities, and that this is all what makes a strong community. So I think. Yeah, for sure not ignoring which often neighborhoods will do right they will ignore certain parts of the community or will not provide certain mm-hmm. to to be open to it i think gives dream a really kind of magical space I'm um i wanted to return to kind of faith and in this case islamic uh the islamic faith and and your kind of uh community organizing mm-hmm do you think the faith brings certain ways of looking at it that might be different? I know you worked on with Move On. Um, do you see certain things that Islam is bringing, or certain philosophies of of thinking about community? And again, we know it's through our our own interpretations, usually of what the religion is saying. But uh, um, if nothing else, strength. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's more philosoph- philosophical, like yeah. yeah. Um. That is a good question. So, you know, for me coming into coming into Islam, um, I was coming from, uh, frankly, from from like an anti-racist perspective. Um, you know, I I came to Islam through a brother, um, and I mentioned I'm black in Lakota and grew up in Detroit. You know, my whole life, um, got to Northwestern, immediately plugged into the black community. Um, now I'd had this like hyper minoritized experience going to Cranbrook, especially at the middle school. And so even though I was from this proud majority black sort of first in the nation type of city in Detroit, I'd also again been, you know, had this experience of being, you know, one of three black kids in a class of 50 and, 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 you know, one of the whitest and wealthiest suburbs in America. Right. So, um, so when I got to Northwestern, you know, I met this, Pakistani brother who was really the only bridge between the Muslims on campus and the black kids on campus. And there were no black Muslims at the time um, or not who I had met. There was, there was a senior who wasn't really visible in the black community. She was quite visible in the Muslim community, but not in the black community. And so this particular brother who was my, my year, um, you know, we became uh, very tight, you know, and it was very much about, um, we, I mean, we initially bonded over Malcolm X. Like, literally, I think our first conversation was about Malcolm X. Um, and, you know, I came to know him as someone who, um, you know, had gone to school uh, at the alma mater of Muhammad Ali in Louisville, had grown up around black people, had been mentored by a, a teacher named Mr. X in high school. <laughs> um, you know, and... Uh, you know, he's just this really interesting guy. We had a a, um, a magazine on campus called Blackboard, which is like, you know, black student magazine. And we always had this section called 21 questions at the end that were like insidery questions, right? Like you kind of, you, if you knew the subtext as a black student on campus, you would laugh at these questions or you'd know the answer. Mm. 
and there was one this was probably freshman year i think probably like third semester third quarter or whatever freshman year one of the questions was literally just and mind you this is northwestern like one of the pioneering black studies department right we're all a bunch of nerds like and the question was uh osman comma black question mark (laughs) right Right? which has so many layers to it right because you know the opposite of that is you know the story sometimes that this brother named uh ustado betala evans tells this story sometimes of being at a masjid in suburban chicago and uh the announcer a south asian brother was given a sheet that that had an announcement about like a black lives matter rally in, in chicago and he literally responded um but we're white Right. And so, um, you know, uh, so a lot of layers there in terms of, you know, uh, how how folks are racialized and the identities that people inhabit. And so this brother, you know, pledged my traditionally black fraternity, you know, um, was always active in the Muslim community, too. He was MSA vice president and all these things, but was very much authentically active and present in the black community. We ended up living together with a few other brothers. And my senior year is when we started having these series of conversations that ultimately led to me accepting Islam. Um, you know, but again, this was after a, a college uh, uh, tenure, if you will, as you know, president of the Black Student Union and super active in the first, uh, um, you know, traditionally Black fraternity in the country, and uh, you know, a Black Studies major, and so. Um, you know, though I had grown up Christian, I had sort of faded from the church in college, not in any intentional way, just stopped attending and so forth. Um, and, you know, uh, the conversations that we were having, um, you know, took me in a direction I just didn't expect to go, you know, and it was me coming to Islam was a combination of just like the, the miracles of the Quran, um, but also, again, specifically the anti-racist nature of the scripture. And the fact that there were sayings, uh, explicit statings from the Prophet Sallallahu peace be upon him, you know, against racism or colorism. Um, the fact that there were uh, explicit passages in the Quran about why we were even created as different peoples and different colors and tongues and so forth. And so, you know, to me, it was like, okay, this is a, a text and a scriptural record that cannot be manipulated um, into being a defense of 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 racism and white supremacy and slavery and so many other things, the way that you know, my text had been manipulated. And so, um, you know, these are the things that sort of led me into the faith. And so I came into Islam as someone who had been really active on campus and in various sort of social justice spaces, you know, I was taking classes in peace studies and going to this rally in this city or this state or whatnot. And so that was my background. And then all of a sudden I'm about to graduate and I'm in this new faith and this new community. And really I wasn't even in a community yet. I mean, I was leaving campus. I wasn't about to all of a sudden be, you know, the heart of the MSA or anything, right? So um, so I spent some early time right after my Shahada, right after graduation, kind of floating. My friend had left the country for a while and like I, you know, I had a very, you know, didn't really have an anchor. But I had met these folks at this place called the Inner City Muslim Action Network. Um, I had seen their executive director, Dr. Rami Nashashibi, give a speech on campus. I'd actually gone to see Bill Ayers speak. Bill Ayers, you know, being the 60s radical, you know, white guy and leader of the weather underground. He's the reason that they caught that they said Barack Obama palled around with terrorists. Um, I'd actually gone to see him speak and, and Rami had been also on the program. And I left that event only remembering what Rami said. 
and so that was my introduction to E-Man, and I'm going to get around to actually answering your question now. <laughs> so I, I, fir- I first saw Rami speak, then I went to um, what they call their community cafe program. A community cafe, it was at this place called the Parkland Ballroom on MLK Drive in Chicago. It was, um, you know, it was a it was a concert effectively, but it was, you know, small, it was intimate, it was, you know, low ceilings, it was, you know, a really interesting crowd, like, you know, live but not too live. <laughs> um, you know, cool vendors, booksellers, different types of food lining the auditorium. And what really got me was that the the headlining artist, one was a rapper from this area named One Below. Um, and then the other was uh, a group called the Khalil Shahid Quartet. May Allah have mercy on, on Brother Khalil. And I think they were from Oakland and they were this kind of like Moroccan jazz fusion group. And so to see this like kind of, uh, um, just kind of like raw, Hip hop from Pontiac, because you know, because one below is not it's not poppy rap. It's like you know, what I mean, like you have to enjoy hip hop to like <laughs> one below and binary stars. So so to kind of like see that and then immediately be followed by this Moroccan jazz quartet. I was like, man, what is this space these people are creating? Like it was dynamic, you know what I mean? Um, and so you know, that was like the second moment that that this place Iman caught my eye. But but what also stuck out to me was that. In the midst of the performances, they had time where their organizers came up on stage and talked about the campaigns that they were working on and talked about this grassroots human rights framework that they were bought into and the the interfaith effort that they were plugged into, this coalition for community and religious organizations. And, um, and you know, they were really using this space as a recruitment point for their organizing work. You know, uh, you know not to say that they weren't, creating a space where folks were appreciating the art for its sake, but it, but it was very much functional as well. And that would have been a month and a half before I graduated. So I graduate, I'm floating all summer. The loneliest first Ramadan you'll ever have as a Muslim. I mean, a lot of converts have a lonely first Ramadan. Um, and then I stumbled into a job, Eddie, man. I saw that they were posting, they had posted for a job. I didn't feel like I had, cut, I had spent enough time volunteering. I didn't feel like I had put in the effort to actually apply for a job there. But someone suggested that I should, and alhamdulillah, I ended up landing the job and you know started a tenure of working there for a couple of years. And that is where I like formally learned about community organizing. That's where I sort of put a name to some of the stuff that we have been doing on campus. That's where I learned about people like Saul Alinsky and the Industrial Areas Foundation and this kind of like uh, Chicago originated form of community organizing. Um, and it's where I saw Dr. Rami and his organizing team really sort of weave in the, the life story of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, into these organizing frameworks and draw examples from his stories, his life, uh, you know, that had um, resonance in the organizing work. Um, so, you know, that was sort of really key for me. Um, I will say, you know, just for folks who are interested in that type of stuff in general, as a quick side note, Iman still periodically does their trainings. Um, Dream locally will be doing some trainings later this year, probably full weekend trainings in October, but we may be doing some different, uh, masjid visits before then. But there's also a national organiz- uh, program now called the Muslim Power Building Project, which is very much kind of like a multi-day effort to train Muslims 
in uh, brass tacks community organizing skills, but also to to uh, put it with you know sort of nestle that within an Islamic framework. Um, so I just encourage folks to to look into those opportunities for like more depth on this issue. So that's a whole bunch of background to your question, <laughs> uh, and to actually answer the question around. Um, you know, examples of community organizing from the life of the prophet or just kind of from our tradition. You know, um, what I'll say is that part of, you know, organizing or the, a core, the core of organizing is really about empowering folks to be their own best advocates, right? It is not trying to speak for people. It is not trying to do for people. It is developing the leadership in people. It's pulling them into public life. It's helping them find their voice. It's strategizing with them. It's political education, but it's a dialectic. It's back and forth. There's a give and take. There's dual learning. Um, but ultimately, it's democratic. And it's very much about the people deciding what's important to them and then organizing themselves around that and using their collective power, using the strength of all those relationships that they hold to actually affect change on what, what matters to them. Um, to do that, you very much have to meet individuals where they are. You know, um, you have to uh, um, have one-on-one -on -one conversations that are really intentional about understanding what is someone's self-interest? You know, what is it that motivates them? How can you tap into what motivates them? Their intrinsic motivation might be another word for self. And sometimes we get lost in this phrase, self-interest. It's not the same as selfishness, right. but a better phrase for it might be intrinsic motivation. You know, what is their intrinsic motivation? How does it tie to the work that you're doing or the community that you're organizing? Um, you know, I think that concept of kind of meeting individuals where they are and sort of everyone having, you know, their own medicine, if you will, um, is very much prophetic. You know, I think the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam quite often gave people advice that was specifically for them. Um, you know, uh, when he tells Abu Dhar, you know, that leadership is not for the one who seeks it. You know, sometimes people take this hadith, this, this saying of the prophet, and they, and they sort of generalize it, when really this was a, a statement specific to one person about, about, you know, what they sought and why it perhaps wasn't right for them in that moment. Um, you know, uh, there are ways that, you know, we look at, um, you know, mentorship and sort of how the prophet taught, you know, by example, not by uh, admonishment, typically. Um, you know, there are ways that we look at, um, uh, you know, how the prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, um, would identify what was important to people, right? And so, uh, you know, you look at moments where, um, you know, the spoils of war are essentially distributed and, you know, some folks are mad that they don't get an equal share when really what the prophet knows is that the folks who, who um, received those spoils of war needed to have their hearts reconciled. They needed, they had a certain um, uh, um, lack of buy-in and needed a certain type of motivation to stay connected to the community. Um, so, you know, there are, there are, I think, a bunch of ways that we try to, to draw from the life of the prophet. I think it's also important um, that we find a balance with what modern organizing looks like for everybody else that we're in relationship to, 
right? That we find motivation from our faith, that we find examples from our faith, but that we also have a very clear analysis of this specific moment that we live in, of what um, of what white supremacy and racism look like today and how it's a historical phenomenon unlike any other period, um, that we have a, a nuanced and intelligent political analysis, um, you know, that we are not um, overlearning from, from examples that don't fit our time period. Um, but also that like, particularly with, with Muslims and organizing, you know, you could, you know, the congregational organizing and community organizing are two different things, right? And so in a congregational space, you know, at a masjid on Juma or, you know, whatever program you might, you might host at that masjid, you might tap into a certain type of language, right? You might tap into a certain intrinsic motivation, but at a community level, um, you know, you, 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 again, and certain people are better at it than others. Like you, I'm not saying you're abandoning your faith or you're not referencing certain tr- examples, but you are, um, you know, using language that's common to the, to the people that, to the spaces that you're in. So, you know, I see folks in our community sometimes these days trying to redefine terms in ways that I don't think are, um, the most useful, you know, in organizing, we constantly talk about the term power and essentially what that means is someone's agency, someone's ability to execute an action. We talk about building community power. We talk about building the, the power of a community to, um, to, to see through a particular action on their own behalf um, or to, you know, to see through a particular demand and that it gets implemented. You know, we don't, when we talk about that phrase, that when we use that word power, when we talk about these examples, you know, we're not uh, uh, attempting to, to usurp a power that only belongs to Allah, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're not, um, uh, you know, we're not suggesting that ultimately these things are not in his decree or that, right, that we are, that our actions are, are, are separate from Allah's will. Like, like, you know, and so I just think it's really Im- important to acknowledge the nuance here. But again, also, you know, we don't have to be so different that we can't be working in common spaces using common language with other people who share a common goal. Yeah. Also just uh, two different affects, right? I mean, I'm in the sense that there are two spaces, um, two different outcomes being asked of the, of the two kind of uh, systems. Um, So what's, what's uh, in plans for the future for dream? Um, I know you, you had mentioned getting a parcel for commercial development. Um, yeah. But then, I, again, talking about the bigger kind of political landscape or economic landscape, uh, you know, I, I see Dream as both inward looking as far as making the community work, but then, of course, having to deal with the bigger city of Detroit and finding notions of sustainability, which is probably one of the hardest things, um, um, especially as you're talking about all the sort of historical relationships to. Mm-hmm. grassroots organizing that's been happening <laughs> from day one in America for marginalized people but um, but in a way how do we not fall into the same traps or how do we you know elevate ourselves out of it um, but yeah so absolutely what's happening but also maybe on a more philosophical level how how do you where do you think in a way the community organizing has to go so it can become sustainable how uh Mm. Um, where where feel, people feel empowered, uh, yeah, to direct their own lives. Um, so yeah, let's start with the the easier one, which is what's kind of new as far as maybe the commercial pl- uh, plot 
Let's start with the other one. Maybe. All right. So, uh, yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that we are currently active in a campaign called the, uh, it's with a group called the Coalition for Property Tax Justice. I think we anticipate that this coalition will hopefully finish its work in the next, you know, couple few years. We'll put a precise timeline on it right now. But that, you know, ultimately we have a set of objectives that we think we will meet or meet some version of. And, you know, that the campaign isn't going to live forever because we want the problem to get solved, right? right? Like sometimes we say in organizing spaces, we're trying to organize yourself out of a job, right? You know, <laughs> um, and so um, I say that to say that, you know, that has been our, our major campaign priority outside of just the building of our base, the building of our, of our, of our membership, if you will. And that, you know, being on like the dream volunteer side and folks who identify with that dream brand, but also the folks in our block club, our neighborhood association and growing that membership. And ultimately it's really for the, the folks to decide kind of what the next priority is. Okay. Right. And part of that is folks, you know, as, is us doing our job as, as organizers of, of walking with, um, in the sense that like, um, you know, we are still responsible for helping folks develop a political analysis, right? We are still responsible as the organizers for helping folks, you know, um, um, plug into various partners. We are still responsible for sort of being at these coalition tables or, or getting our, our volunteer leaders, our members to these coalition tables. Um, you know, I think that organizing is a really interesting space because, you know, when I was younger, there's this great book called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. Um, and, uh, I believe the sub, the subtitle is something like against the, against the nonprofit industrial complex, you know, and part of one, you know, it's a series of essays, so they're not all, it's not, it's not all one consistent point, but one of the points that gets made is just, um, you know this idea that we that that uh, that social justice work, social change work, has become um, professionalized, corporatized, um, in a way that it sort of defangs it. And um, you know, I think that there's some truth to that. I think there's also truth to this this sort of organizing maxim that we live in the world as it is, while we try to create the world as it should be or could right. be. And you know, um, I say that to say that, you know, I, I, when I first finished that book, I was like, yeah, man, you know, people should just be able to organize in their free time. We don't need all these professional organizers and people getting paid in this industrial comp. And the reality is that like the issues that we are fighting on have, you know, fully staffed teams of professionals working on the other side, right? Like we do need people giving this stuff their full-time attention. We do need people holding these relationships and communities. And we are in a different moment than, you know, the people that we look to for, for inspiration from 50 or 60 years ago. I mean, as you might've mentioned earlier a little bit, uh, or maybe it was before our, our talk started, you know, institutions are not what they used to be in this country. They're not held in the same esteem. They don't have the same membership numbers. They don't have the same funding. Um, part of that is, you know, we've created an economy where folks need two to three incomes to rival what was an average income of 50 or 60 years ago, right? Part of it is folks don't have the same spare time to engage in association life and, and community group life as, as, as they once did, perhaps. Um, and so it's harder to build sustainable organizations just off memberships, just off memberships and dues. Um, you know, you do need to figure out other revenue models. You do need to have 
clear values and political analysis so that when certain money comes knocking at your door, you understand whether it's actually aligned for you to take it or not. But but you have the that, that framework so that you can honestly evaluate it. Like, is it going to be better for us to take this money and do our work with it? Or is it going to be better? Is it going to be worse? Is it going to legitimize something we don't want to legitimize? Is it going to give credence to something we don't believe in, right? So, um, you know, I say that to say that uh, I think you know, uh, organizing is in, is in an interesting space. I also spent, you know, almost a decade, um, you know, deeply in the, the digital organizing world or digital campaigning world. Um, and so I've seen both the benefits and the limitations of that type of work. Um, you know, I've seen, you know, text messages and email lists get used for mass mobilization. You know, I've seen us coordinate hundreds of chapters across the country, scaling that through, you know, smart use of technology. Um, I've also seen that some things are impossible without relationships. Some things are impossible without someone somewhere down the line holding those relationships with all those people. Um, you need organizers on the ground. And it behooves us in these social change, social justice spaces, you know, to have folks who are, again, doing that work full time because the issues, you know, that we're fighting for or, or against, you know, have full time funders or backers. Um, so that's that's you know my little spiel on on organizing if you will and in terms of like in you know that work in detroit um you know as i mentioned earlier we've only been staffed for um or with an executive director and starting to build a staff for about eight months now um and so we are still very much um doing a lot of base building ourselves we're still very much establishing strong relationships with other base building organ and like membership based organizations in the city um, and again, I think, you know, to some extent, just by the nature of organizing, all those groups are in one way or another led by their membership and their membership's priorities. Right. And sometimes we align and sometimes we don't. Right. Um, so that's, that's what I'll say on, on that front. Um, it is always a, a, a very, uh, interesting space to exist in, you know, on a personal level, I'm very much a pragmatist. I think it's why I did democratic progressive politics for a while because you know in that in that line of work there is a sort of pulling to the left and then there's an acceptance of what's actually possible <laughs> um uh and so you know on a on a, uh, on a personal level like i'm i'm always have an eye open for uh opportunities of compromise opportunities of actual real-time progress because every day people are dying and every day people are starving and every day people's water is getting cut off and every day people are getting evicted and you know um, people going through real things don't have time for us to wait for these utopian visions to come to reality at one time. We have to just keep pushing forward. Um, and then when it comes to dream, in terms of where we're going, you know, I am just fully and incredibly bought in on this thing called Dream of Detroit. Mm -hmm. You know, and for us, it was, again, I mentioned earlier, it was a labor of love for a bunch of people for years. You know, our board, bunch of volunteers our steering committee bunch of volunteers people moving into the neighborhood themselves volunteer sometimes people rehabbing their own houses you know um you know it it was something that just had this organic energy it was something that you know you know i would put sort of voice and call to action behind sometimes but it was kind of like you know um to some extent, it was almost like, why don't we have this already, right? And so it was, it was easy for it to resonate with people. Um, you know, they say no idea is original. It's never what you do, but how it's done, 
at least that's how Nas says. And so, so for us, it's about, you know, acknowledging that there are plenty of community building efforts that have come before us that looked like this. There are other Muslim led organizing efforts in the country that, you know, that resemble what we're doing. Um, but we're trying to do it in a certain way with a certain excellence, with a certain level of scale, with a certain type of community engagement and inclusivity. And so, um, hopefully what's next for us is, uh, to over the next few years, build several hundred units of housing in our neighborhood. Um, housing that attracts folks from a variety of income backgrounds, um, housing that is, you know, uh, well integrated into the neighborhood as it currently exists, um, but also isn't held hostage by the fact that Detroit's homes were, are, are, you know, almost criminally old in some cases, right? That Detroit as a city was really like abandoned by the development industry and, you know, and that the age of these homes and their, and their conditions is, is a part of the, the story of Detroit's decline. So, you know, we want to, again, it's always walking a line in this work, right? Um, so, you know, we have currently a 10 block impact turf. Um, we see, we have the boundaries for what it would look like for us to extend that, uh, to make it more of about a hundred block impact turf. Um, we, as I mentioned earlier, bought our first commercial parcels recently, but we also have several other parcels uh, that are within reach, if you will, um, you know, and we are continuing to build that base so that we have both activated, organized Muslims from throughout the metro Detroit area, as well as folks from throughout our, our, our neighborhood, and that we're bringing those two bases together into one that's coherent and that's powerful. Um, I, th I think, uh, and I mentioned earlier, being being bought in because, you know, this was, I was essentially a volunteer executive director for like eight years. Right. And I was getting ready to leave my last job. I was having, you know, my own little personal crisis. <laughs> I was, you know, I felt like I was, uh, I had felt so, um, you know, sometimes they say on purpose. I had felt so aligned with the work I've been doing for so many years. And then all of a sudden I was having this, this itch. I was, you know, Mark, you've been home for almost a decade now, almost as long as you were gone and you are not fully focused on Detroit in the way that you thought you would be, and it's time. And so then the question became, do I try to work at you know, city government, some foundation, some large established nonprofit, you know, or do we do this thing Dream for real, right? Um, and we made that decision to go all in on Dream, you know, with the full support of our board and all of the, the volunteers on our steering committee and everyone else, you know, um, really behind it. And so right now we're trying to build out a staff you know, I said I say that to say that we we are trying to institutionalize this thing to some extent. You know, we are trying to uh, um, um, have a, a housing director and an economic development director and a community organizing director alongside our ED and our development director and our finance director and our comp staff. You know, we are trying to build out our transitional house program to have multiple properties to be able to service both men and women um, and to really um, sort of codify those services that we're offering. Um, you know, we're looking to continue to do more cultural organizing to really make the relationship between uh, the, the artist residency in the neighborhood and dreams organizing work more authentic and sort of mutually reinforcing. Um, you know, we are really looking to, to scale this thing such that, you know, 10, 15 years from now, as you ride up Woodrow Wilson Street or maybe you ride up Linwood, you're going to pass through Boston Edison and then through the the, uh, the neighborhood that Dream does its work in and then into uh, uh, Hope Village. And you're not going to be able to tell a, a massive difference between these neighborhoods other than maybe that you'll see more new construction in our area. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, that's what we're what we're building toward in Shalatel. People can always go to dreamofdetroit.org to get plugged into the work. Um, 
sign, join our listserv. We have a pretty active email list where we try to keep people plugged into what we're, what's coming up and what just happened. Um, you know, of course, follow us on social media. Uh, those are the easiest ways to kind of stay abreast of what we're doing. There's also a volunteer form. And if you fill that out, we'll get in touch with you um, and, and sort of come to understand, inshallah, how you can best plug into the work. So encourage people to do that as well and to be patient with us while we get back to you, inshallah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you know, financial support is always welcome. You know, we um, we are a, a startup nonprofit, essentially. You know, we have a budget of about half a million dollars this year if we hit it. right? Um, you know, and it costs significant money to rehab each individual property. Um, and so, you know, if folks feel inclined to support us in that way, you know, we always welcome that. Um, and you can give online or you could reach out to us if you wanted to talk more. Thank you for all your hard work. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Really wonderful conversation with you. I appreciate it. This podcast is a production of the Halal Metropolis Project. Our team includes your hosts, Sally Howell, Osman Khan, and Razi Jaffrey, with production support from Asma Baban and editing support from Shiraz Ahmed. Our theme music is composed by Lou Fuki and Divine Providence. The Halal Metropolis podcast has been made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art, and the El Hibri Foundation, and is hosted by the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. For more information, check us out at halalmetropolis.org.